Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. Thank you for joining us for episode 12 of our Bracket on a Boat. This week, we'll be discussing The Life of Pi, as well as Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. And this episode is the one where we dig into some of the stuff below the surface of these movies. Yeah. Both of these films have controversies associated with them. One was at the time of release, and one is much later. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and dig into what went on with Life of Pi. Yeah. Life of Pi won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects at the 2013 Academy Awards. And the Oscar goes to Life of Pi! Completely reasonable. The film looks gorgeous. Um, the studio responsible for a vast majority of the visual effects for the film is Rhythm and Hue Studio. Not long after they won the Oscar, they were forced to file for bankruptcy because of how underpaid visual effects artists were and how much undercutting of cost there is. There's a lot of foreign studios that will undercut U.S. studios because their either labor laws are more lax or cost of living is much cheaper. And visual effects are one of the few industries in Hollywood that are not unionized. Yet. Hopefully. Outside the Academy Awards that year, 500 visual effects artists were protesting. And when Bill Westenhofer, the effects supervisor at the studio, brought up the troubles while accepting his award, his microphone was cut off. It became a huge deal. Lots and lots of visual effects artists and those who supported them changed their uh, avatars on various social medias to just a green color key because that's what so many films would look like without their work. Right. And unfortunately, Rhythm Hughes was able to limp along for uh, another few years, but they were bought up and restructured. So I think they still have films coming out, but it's not quite the same studio that it was. Mm-hmm. Really only in name. And some of the films that they're working on are not like prestigious names. Yeah, like in 2019, they did the effects for the Hellboy film. Which we had some thoughts about. Yeah. Well, uh, I think it's Comics Brackets, What If Number Two, if you'd like to go hear our thoughts on that film, mm-hmm. as well as the Guillermo del Toro oeuvre. Which we can't now bring up at least once every three episodes. I, we, we both love Guillermo del Toro. Why are we sponsored by Guillermo del Toro? <laughs> if that wonderful man would like to sponsor a small independent podcast, I'm not going to say no. Just let us say nice things about Hans Labyrinth. We'll do it. So that's what's up with Life of Pi. I don't think it's fair to talk about this film and specifically praise how gorgeous the visuals are without talking about the people who made the film what it is and were kind of forgotten afterwards. It's also frustrating because the visual effects artists are so good at their jobs, most people don't realize how many visual effects are in films. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you really go searching online, you can find like before and after shots that are mind-boggling to see. Actors who are just on a green screen soundstage and honestly only move maybe like 10 feet back and forth, but in the final cut of the film, it, everything looks completely different and you get a this huge sense of space. We often think about visual effects like, say, the dinosaurs from Jurassic Park, the animals from Life of Pi, or the, um, the the face tentacles from Pirates of the Caribbean, but we don't talk enough about like the digital matte paintings that we get. Looking at the before and after for Mad Max Fury Road is really impressive because all that landscape looks and feels very real because it's so seamlessly inserted in, but a lot of it was added into the background and post, and 
it's a really impressive testament to create this this landscape without anyone thinking about how good that visual effect is. Yeah. And if you know anything about Miller, you know how much he wants everything to be practical effects. He wants effects that work, that actors can actually engage with because it gets better acting. Mm-hmm. Even he is using them in the, his films, and that goes to show just how ubiquitous they are. But also because of the way that visual effects are easy, now I'll say easy with some air quotes, but like how much progress there has been in making that accessible in the last 30 years or so Mm -hmm. to create worlds, it can often be a fallback for a lot of stuff. Compare and contrast Lord of the Rings versus The Hobbit and how very CGI heavy those look and how it winds up looking less good overall because of how much corner cutting there was by being like, oh, we can just exploit these artists and have them do all the work for us and not put in the time and effort to create a real world. Yeah, I definitely think that's a good point to hit on that. The visual effects industry has changed how films in general are made and a lot more of the labor is getting shuffled into visual effects artists who are not unionized, who are not getting paid well. Whereas before, a lot of these would be at least partially practical effects and using uh, visual tricks for perspective and things like that in order to then aid visual effects artists later, whereas now it's just all being done whole cloth. On the flip side, we have people who are putting a lot of really beautiful effort into creating fully realized CGI worlds, um, like like you know the Pixars, the, the DreamWorks, etc., mm-hmm. that do think about that. And it's kind of interesting to see the that evolving over time. Mm-hmm. Like, I think Life of Pi is not one that was just like, eh, we'll figure it out. It, yeah. It considered what it was going to take to make those shots work really well. Yes. Well, now that we have that tangent about the importance of actually paying your visual effects artists, let's talk about Life of Pi. I mean, honestly, I feel like it shouldn't be a tangent. That's just like the trunk of this movie. Yeah, um, that, you, that's true. Yeah. Well, it is important to talk about for this movie, it is not necessarily germane to the finished product of the thing that we're looking at in terms of evaluating as an art piece, but mm. yeah. Let's get what round two is about. It's about the movie and the world it exists in. Mm-hmm. Where do you want to dive in? Um, I actually want to talk about the beginning of the film because it has something that we don't see very often in modern Hollywood, a opening credits. Yeah. I understand why Hollywood has moved away from opening credits. They can feel long and boring and with audiences, shorter attention spans, it doesn't always work. But if you can find a way to integrate integrate opening credits in an interesting way and start and get the story moving forward, I think it can work incredibly well. The opening of the canonical MCU Hulk um, with uh, Edward Norton, where it's both a, f- a flashback but also a credit sequence that gets you up to speed on this character while also like running through the boring intro stuff, is a great example of that. Yeah. I- ironically, uh, Ang Lee also directed a Hulk film, but that was from like 2003. 2003. And it's remembered with differing emotions. I honestly can't remember most of that film. I sure watched it. <laughs> I don't know what to think about it. I need to rewatch it. Yeah. Now that I appreciate Ang Lee more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I also really think that opening credits are a nice touch when you're dealing with actors who are not very well known, so their names are prominently displayed beforehand, and so people get a sense of, okay, this is the actor's name who is portraying this character. I really like that that actor. What else are they in? Right. Ang Lee seems like he's pretty good at celebrating his actors. Another way that directors have gone on to do that is with the um, mid-roll credit scene, which I do appreciate. 
it may have become a little too ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. That usually is a way of saying, hey, audience, post-credit sequence coming. Stick around. Yeah. Yeah. I can't recall if it's in recent Pixar films, but in like older Pixar films, what they would do is they would have bloopers mm-hmm. in during the credits for people to watch and laugh at. Yeah. And I love those. Those are really fun. Mm-hmm. An important part of the uh, the overture, the crowd song, whatever, is something to bring us into the world. And what this opening credit sequence is telling us is animals, color, surrealism. It's not overly surreal, but it is definitely very vibrant and hyper-real. And mm-hmm. it helps us get ready for the rest of the film. Yes. Another thing I would like to praise the film for is its interesting transitions. Mm, yeah. One in particular stands out to me, and then I was noticing all the interesting ones after that. But there is a transition where a character dives into the pool, and then we see the ripple effect, and then when the ripple effect stops, we are in a different scene. Mm-hmm. And it it may be a little hokey, but I really love when films do interesting things with their transitions. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we don't these days because we kind of have this thing where films have to be like very real. We can't acknowledge mm-hmm. that these are films. And I think that doing the opposite here, uh, acknowledging the artifice of the narrative is key to what's already happening in the story. It's visually compelling and it's, again, again <laughs> the thing we already talked about with uh, the underpinning of a visual effects artist, but it shows clear thought was put into the arc of the film from the get-go, which is, is really nice. Yeah. I, I do definitely think that there's a lot of truth to moving away from stylized transitions as a way to ground a film in reality. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's always necessary to do that to a film. Like, I love Star Wars. I, mm-hmm. In general, there, there are <laughs> ones that I like less and ones that I like more. But I do appreciate their use of the wipe transitions. Mm-hmm. Like, it's how I know I'm in a Star Wars film. But also, I think because of that, now we kind of associate that with Star Wars when no one else is doing them, for mm-hmm. better or worse. Yeah, but that does mean that people have to try and do a different thing. Mm-hmm. Like that really good um, death back into bed scene from uh, Happy Death Day. Mm. Uh, which, if you haven't seen Happy Death Day, what are you doing? <laughs> There's a line I really like that is very on the nose, but because the movie is so open about its artifice, I'm not bothered by it. Mm-hmm. Where Pi is telling Richard Parker, We were both raised in a zoo by the same master. Very much like a button about like talking about why these characters are having empathy for each other, I guess-ish, in theory. I think it's a fun thing to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I quite call his dad a monster. That seems like a bit of a stretch, but... Yeah, like, I definitely think that... Pi and his father had troubles, but I don't think they were troubles any more than most men have with their fathers around Pi's age of 16. Mm-hmm. His dad did make him watch a tiger eat an animal, which is pretty dramatic, but also an important lesson that, hey, you see the sharp things on that tiger? Don't get near those. Yeah. Like, And that is, I think, not necessarily much more monstrous than teaching a kid how to slaughter an animal on a farm. You know, can be traumatizing, but it's definitely a part of that work. Yes. But also I understand how him processing through that was important for him at the time. Yes. So, yeah. And finding ways to empathize with someone, even someone as different from you as a tiger, is good. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that scene with the, with the tiger and the goat, one thing that I really love is that after that scene, color drains from the film. It's They move to a much more mid-tone gray palette mm-hmm. for a little while, and we don't get another boost of color until Pi meets his his crush. Yeah. Which, big mood. Yeah. It's a little cheesy and corny, and honestly, I don't think 
including her was that important for the film. Yeah. Um, I haven't read the book, so maybe they're, she's a bit more prominent of a character. Maybe there's like a few more chapters with her. Mm-hmm. I guess it does give Pi a very concrete reason to want to stay. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, uh, unfortunately not terribly important to the plot. No. But also I think it would... But also that means we get more time spent with the beautiful colors, and I'm, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. It's not like the movie suffers for it. Like, the shots are still very well composed. The mm-hmm. colors still look nice. And I think yeah. it's a clear showing of the mastery of the cinematography mm-hmm. that it's able to work with different schemes and look good. Yeah. It's not a drastic change in color. If you're looking for it, you can pick it up. But if you're not, you may not realize it. Mm-hmm. We were really like, yep, yeah, there it is. Yeah. There's definitely other parts of the film where they use that color drain again like when pie has to kill the fish for food mm-hmm. like the the fish is this beautiful vibrant like blue green color and then he kills it and the color just drains in a way that is not realistic at all but feels very appropriate for this film mm-hmm. it's always interesting seeing a modern film that is completely okay with you realizing that it's a story and doesn't really care about your suspension of disbelief. It winds up telling us something about Pi in the present day in that the present day scenes are fairly vibrant. They're not as vibrant as the past, but they're still reasonably vibrant. So it's a way of telling us that Pi's okay. He might, might not be quite as bright as he was as a child, but he's not like sad now. He's not like ruined by this experience. He's still in a good place. You can move beyond the trauma you experience. Exactly. That's not a thing you're going to realize until you kind of watch the movie and learn its language, which is cool. Mm-hmm. I also think that if those sequences were as vibrant as the flashback sequences were, it would be a little jarring. It would be, it's just a smidge much. So I think it's mm-hmm. a good place both for Pi as a character, but also for us as an audience to come into. I will say that it does kind of create this unfortunate reading of India and the ocean as this kind of vibrant other as compared to Canada. Mm, sure. It's not explicit, but I can definitely see a reading that way, and that's not great. But also, the director is of Asian descent, and so are a vast majority of the actors, so I'm not super concerned about it. From what I've seen off the top of my head, a lot of American cinema does often portray India as being more vibrant than (laughs) the, the normal world. I have not been to India, don't know a lot about it as a cultural place, so I can't speak to if the, the building cities are in fact more visually bright than ours. Like art, I don't, I wish our cities were less gray concrete. I want murals everywhere. I want more graffiti. Look at that house, look at how beige that is out the window. Hire a painter. If my neighbors are listening to this, I'm sorry, but also hire a painter. I, I can see where that read is coming from, but I think it also is, is part of playing into the broader narrative. Mm-hmm. Because while it is visually brighter, it is also not portrayed as like an inherently better place. Even though Pi liked it more, there is still, you know, business things. There's still kids being shitty. Mm-hmm. There's a storm happening, and Pi is kind of going mad at this point because towards the end of his journey, before it gets to the Cannibal Island, yeah, I call it that. Um, Carnivorous Island. Carnivorous Island, sure, yeah. Where a storm is raging, and he. Come out to see God, the it's a fun button to, to some of the religion stuff that has been all the way through the film. That it's. Uh, that to him, God is just like surrendered to a, a much bigger power that uh, is 
uh, huge and impressive and doesn't really care about you, mm-hmm. uh, but but still ought to be experienced and not hidden from. I'm not really sure that the film does a good job of really exploring Pi's religiosity. There's a little bit of lip service paid to it at the beginning of the film where he's talking about growing up as a Hindu and then becoming Catholic and then becoming Muslim. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really explain a whole lot about how Pi engages with all three of those things at the same time, how he views the divine, mm-hmm. which I think would have been interesting. I, I definitely think we get inklings from his experience with Richard Parker and how he views the world as he's telling the story. But there's very few explicit answers. Mm-hmm. Which, admittedly, that is how kind of, that is sort of how religion be. Yeah. But I think that we could have spent more time with that if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. But also, I get how that might have been alienating for some viewers who maybe don't necessarily want to spend a whole movie talking about God and what what your interaction with religion is, especially if they're not familiar with Islam or Hinduism. I know that we would be, but also we are both like into religious theory, yeah, a study, a concept. There's also an entire Christian film industry. That's true. <laughs> Although it's really less of a film industry and more of a way to proselytize. There are many Christian films. There are many fewer films that are unpacking what it means to be Christian or how Christianity works in the world. Those are often more secular movies. Yes. I assume there are comparable things for Hinduism, Islam, etc. I don't know them. That's not a not my field. I, I think it's definitely, a in general, very associated with Christianity because of their focus on evangelism. Mm-hmm. Um, I also know that there's a number of videos uh, that you can find on YouTube specifically talking about the way the Christian film industry works and why its focus is the way it is. Mm-hmm. But speaking of sequels, let's unpack some stuff from Parts of the Caribbean 2, Dead Man's Chest. Yeah. Um, so we did talk about two controversies we need to talk about. This one is not related directly to the film, but one of the film's most prominent stars. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty common knowledge that Johnny Depp has a history of accusations of many things, including um, domestic violence, and there seems to be an ongoing back and forth about what actually happens, actually is happening with all of that. I genuinely don't know what to think or say, so I want to acknowledge that if Johnny Depp really is a monster and we're praising him for his work, I want to separate those things, but also acknowledge that that is a problem. If he's in fact a victim, oh boy, that sucks. So I do also think it's probably important for us to mention the other victim slash abuser, possibly, of Amber Heard, yeah. who is his wife. Mm-hmm. Ex-wife it, at this point. Yeah, because of how much actually is controversial as opposed to just like problematic. I don't want to come down on any particular side here. On, maybe we may never know. Yeah. And I'm sad about that. I'm sad that the way that the, the film industry works is so tied up with rumor mongering and he said, she said, and the way that... It protects abusers. It protects abusers and the way that there is financial gain no matter what actually happens. So we are mentioning it here. We're aware. We don't really know how to unpack it because the situation is very unclear. And it's sort of still ongoing. It's not It's not like the Rhythm and Blues dispute where that is in the past. The story is told there. Yeah, like it's, it's also very definitive who is in the right and who is not. Right. <laughs> it's very easy to choose a side in that. Mm-hmm. Here, unfortunately, the evidence is more muddled. Anyway, let's actually talk about the movie. Mm-hmm. Which, again, is a sort of ongoing story. I went up watching Pirates of the Caribbean 3, not long after we recorded the last episode, just to kind of 
tie that off. And it hasn't aged as well as I remember having done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, on the whole, my opinion of the Pirates trilogy has kind of diminished a bit in rewatching them. Yeah. Yeah, like, I remember my first time watching three, I was not as engaged as I was with the previous ones. I think there's just all too much going on in three, and it's also trying really, really hard to tie off all the loose ends from the previous film. Mm-hmm. Three never feels like a film in its own right. It always feels like it's finishing up two story. Mm-hmm. It feels like the last episode of a miniseries as opposed to a sequel to another film. Yeah, and and we, we talked about that quite a bit in the previous episode where it's difficult to separate these two films because they are very much designed to be viewed in tandem. And then we've gotten two other pirate sequels. Yeah. That no one really cares about. No one cares. Uh, Part, Part of that is because it took them a while to release after the first trilogy. The fourth one only brings back Jeffrey Rush and Donnie Depp, and uh, they're, they're just not as good. <laughs> they very clearly exist to keep making money as opposed to keep telling stories that need to be told. I think that uh, 3 wraps up a lot of these stories really well. We don't really need more from them. Mm-hmm. I don't... Sure, side characters, but none of the protagonists have more in them that needs to be extracted, at least not without letting a lot of time pass. Yeah. We also should probably mention that there are also two other Pirates of the Caribbean Caribbean films that are in various stages of pre-production. Mm-hmm. When I was pulling up the, the cast list for Pirates of the Caribbean 2, uh, one of the suggestions was Pirates of the Caribbean 6. So... People are interested. People still want more. I think I think that's part of it. Like people do still want more, but it's hard to figure out how to get give more of what we wanted. Yeah, I think part of it is that people want more in this genre of swashbuckling films because mm-hmm. we don't get a lot of them. We get so few. Like it was effectively a dead genre until Pirates of the Caribbean revived it. Mm-hmm. And now we have a bunch of people who are really attached to the franchise and really want more stories in that space, and Hollywood is not giving it to them. There really aren't many other, like, swashbuckly adventure things. I can't think of any off the top of my head that have come out in the last few years, even with the popularity of Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, Pirates has been losing popularity, but that's more so that they keep putting out stinker films than than people are disinterested, I think. Right, but you think that after 4, some other studio might have been, ah, they're losing their touch. What can we put out that will replace this? Yeah, and and Disney took maybe not necessarily the wrong idea, but a very different idea. It's like, oh, we can make movies based off of rides. And that's how we got The Haunted Mansion and Tomorrowland and Jungle Cruise. Yes, (laughs) all those movies that are just hitting really big with a popular culture. (laughs) Everyone cares so deeply. I think Jungle Cruise is the fifth movie that's going to have, like, the first gay in it. So that's (laughs) fun. If you stretch your definitions, you could consider um, some of the Star Wars's and some of the uh, Lord of the Rings' kind of swashbucklery. But even then, it's it's out there. Yeah, like, Lord of the Rings is, like, very high fantasy. Star Wars is science fantasy slash science fiction, however you want to draw that distinction. Westerns in space. Yeah. Samurai in space, what have you. It's a very Western samurai in Italy. But we don't really have a lot of relatively historically grounded swashbuckling films. Like, I'm, no one has attempted to make a Three Musketeers film mm-hmm. in a while. I think the last one was the one with Leonardo DiCaprio. 
Nolan's uh, May of the Zorro film that we clearly need. Friend of the podcast, Mike Noel, has a whole thought about uh, an updated Zorro that ha- that interacts with like the concentration camps that we're dealing with right now and how that would be a really compelling narrative Hollywood does not have the balls to make. Mm-hmm. I guess you could add a stretch called The Old Guard, kind of swashbucklery, but that movie isn't really having fun. I think part of the point of swashbuckle movies is to just have a good time. We, we need more action comedies. I mean... Honestly, probably the most prominent action comedies that we're getting right now is stuff coming out of the MCU. Yeah, which are not as swashbucklery. I think another success of Pirates of the Caribbean is that it, apart from just the swashbuckleriness, it has characters who drive the plot a lot. Mm-hmm. Will Turner has the mission mm-hmm. uh, this whole thing, and it's honestly delightful. I love how much he is like mm-hmm. just very dedicated to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. That's the way he was in the first movie too. Like his, like his inability to barter with anything beyond Elizabeth goes free. Name your terms, Mr. Turner. Elizabeth goes free! Yes, we know that one. Really good and fun. And makes him a very likable character because you know what he wants. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is a good contrast to Jack who doesn't know what he wants. They found this thing that really matters mm-hmm. and worked really well. And then also uh, Will being pushed in the other direction where now he could save his dad um, and he has to deal with having conflict in his life for the first time ever mm-hmm. is also compelling. The the ensemble cast and the way they balance it is one of the huge triumphs of this film series. And it's not even just the main cast. We also get a bu- all of these wonderful side characters. Pintel and Rigetti, who are fantastic. They come in at the right times for a little bit of levity and we get to kind of see what a relatively normal person's reaction to all of the goings-on would be like. We're calling them normal? They are, they are weird motherfuckers. They are at least attempting to be more grounded than most of the other main characters. That's true. There's, I read from them a lot of influence from like Depression-era comedy duos, like 1930s 1950, through 1950s comedy duos like Laurel and Hardy or Abbott and Costello. Mm-hmm. Honestly, they should have had a spin-off movie. I now pronounce you Pintel and Rigetti or whatever. <laughs> Pintel and Rigetti meet the creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh man, I'm so mad we don't have that now. <laughs> That'd be great. That's actually excellent. Yes. I want that even more than Hobbs and Shaw meet the Wolfman. <laughs> They also broadly don't want things in the same way everybody else does. Like, everyone else wants, like, you know, these cosmic things. They just want to, like, not be in jail. <laughs> they, they, they would like to yeah. have some money, maybe. One of them just wants a, a false eye that doesn't cause <laughs> irritation. Maybe he wants to, like, save his immortal soul or something. Mm. Which is really interesting. I love narratives in our world where characters find out that magic or pagan mythologies or or ghosts or whatever are real and then have to process that in terms of mainstream Christianity or whatever. That's always fun to see and I like how uh, we have this debate about Since we're not immortal no more. We gotta take care of our immortal souls. You know you can't read. It's the Bible, you get credit for trying. And considering all of the great comedy in these films, it's really unfortunate where we get really crappy punch down jokes. Mm-hmm. We do get another uh, eunuch joke from Jack at Will's expense in this. Thankfully, it's only one. Mm. That is something that I don't think anyone was clamoring for. No, well, I'm sure there are people who were clamoring for it. Like, that's, I guess, something that people found funny. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 
I, I get it. I get that, like, that's, like, lowest common denominator kind of joke. We don't need it. On the flip side, Jack, trying to just, like, paprika himself as a distraction, he's like, yes, I, I'm making myself more flavorful. That's funny as hell. Mm-hmm. More of that. I think I'm sad that this movie does not have, uh, Zoe Saldano was, uh, played Anna Maria in the first film and was a prominent black character. Was a moderately prominent black character in that movie. She was the one who, uh... Jack stole a ship from. Yeah. Uh, she's not here and I'm sad. I think that she would have been a good voice to augment this narrative and I would have enjoyed seeing her and Tia interact a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I think that's mostly from her moving on with her career and they probably did not want to pay her the salary that she deserved. Oh, for sure. I'm not sad that Zoe Saldana has a career, but I am sad that they didn't put in the time and effort to make her a more prominent character so that she would have a reason to come back. Yes. Circling back to the unfortunate eunuch joke, I'm totally fine with sexual and dick joke humor. Mm -hmm. One of the jokes that does that better in this film is when someone is like looking at Jack and asking, why doesn't your compass work? (laughs) Very clearly an innuendo. (laughs) Yeah. Better than the spyglass innuendo in the third film where Jack has a small spyglass and then Barbosa has a larger spyglass. Then we have that scene come up later on where Barbosa has a spyglass and Jack has a comically large spyglass <laughs> he's found that doesn't actually work. And Barbosa giving him just this exasperated look of, really? Really, my dude? I love how insecure Jack Sparrow is. <laughs> Too many people have not keyed into how insecure he is as a person, <laughs> including the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we talked about it last time, but... Uh, Elizabeth Swan's showing up to to the bar fight that happens about halfway through where we meet Norton and everyone is trying to beat him up and just each other. It's Tortuga. It's just like that. Her walking in and somehow winning a bar fight that she was not present for the start of is incredibly on brand for her. It's a very great bit where she realizes the only way to keep Norton safe is for her to be the one who knocks him out. That's a great bit of comedy. It's great quick thinking from her. It's a great way to end that scene. Mm-hmm. It's just a very good bit. Mm-hmm. It's also really interesting comparing that with her reaction afterwards where she's like... What has the world done to you? That pity and empathy that I think this movie doesn't have all that much of. Mm -hmm. To be fair, like, Norrington, by the end of the film, proves that he doesn't really deserve it. You shut your whore mouth, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think because I like Norrington as a character so much, it's hard for me to acknowledge his flaws. I think he's like just very well written. Yeah, um, like he he's an incredibly well written character. I don't have any disagreements with the way he acts and the way his character plays out, but he's also a dick. He, yeah, he's a huge dick. And this this film is filled with dicks, but Norrington is definitely one of the worst among them. Mm-hmm. Life keeps shitting on him, so I kind of I can pity him a little bit. I can feel yeah. a little bit of like regret. Let's pet in this corner. Let's uh, let's bring that back. Okay. Let's return to the old Penn's corner. Okay. During one of the climactic fights of this film, we get a slow-mo shot of someone firing a musket to blow up the Black Pearl while the Kraken is attacking. And the musket ball comes out of the barrel and it is spinning. Is that, uh, is that not a thing? Do they not have rifling in muskets? <laughs> no. 
They didn't. That's one of the reasons that muskets were so fucking inaccurate and why early firearms were not nearly as deadly is because you could barely hit the broadside of a barn. Rifling wasn't around until like the mid-1800s. That's one of the reasons why the Civil War was so much more deadly than previous wars. Mm. The reason that bullets spin when they come out of a barrel is because there are uh, channels that in the barrel that kind of spiral around to give the bullet spin so they're more stable in the air. A corkscrew. Yeah, exactly. And muskets were just a smooth tube that you had an explosion in and then shot the ball forward. I can see these movies having, like, a character with a gun that he hasn't realized the full utility of and no one else is aware of, and that's why it's such a good shot. That could be a fun little bit for this. I wouldn't be complaining about this so much if it wasn't, like, this slow-mo shot where they clearly show the musket ball coming out of the barrel and like having spin on it and it's just it's not that big of a deal but it bothers me so much (laughs) and it's weird because it's not like this is a small target we're aiming at it's a giant cluster of rum and gunpowder okay now moving on to the actually interesting thought of uh, leftist themes i think it's incredibly interesting that this film makes a very explicit distinction that employment, it does not equal freedom. Mm -hmm. In certain contexts, that employment and freedom are mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. There's a conversation that's worth having that's probably bigger than this podcast about the difference between being an employee and being a laborer. Working on a farm has a lot of different contexts depending on who you are and what your your relationship to the land is. Yes. We can get to a very long discussion of uh, means of production and being able to own your labor as opposed to renting it out and the ways in which even people who do very differently dramatically different types of work intellectual labor or physical labor or social and emotional labor have a common cause in the fact that employment fucking sucks and having no control over if you are able to do your job based off of the whims of someone above you mm-hmm. sucks. And having no power to influence those whims or make those decisions also sucks. Yeah. Going back to the visual effects from Life of Pi, this wouldn't have happened if visual effects had been around during the start of Hollywood and had a guild and was unionized. I'm not saying that things would be magically all better because that's not what unions do, but it, the the situation would not be as dire and drastic as it is currently. There would be avenues towards things being better. Honestly, that makes me understand some of the MacGuffins that we're working with here better because Jack isn't going for the heart. He's going for the drawing of the keys to get to the keys to get to the chest to get to the heart. There are so many obstacles between him and having freedom. There's so many people who kind of have the same complicated route by which they have to go to have freedom through. There are all these complicated barriers they have to surmount to get there. Mm-hmm. Some of them being just being able to visualize what that freedom looks like. I don't yeah. know if that's an intentional thing, but it yeah. seems. And to a certain extent, all of the main characters' stories in some way revolve around them seeking freedom. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think it's less seeking freedom and more interacting with freedom. So, like, a lot of our protagonists are all about having freedom of one kind or another, mm-hmm. whereas Cutler Beckett and David Jones are about taking freedom away from others. Yeah, but I think even with Davy Jones and Norrington, they are in some ways seeking freedom. Like, Davy Jones is seeking freedom from emotional pain, mm. 
and Norrington is seeking freedom from his past mistakes. I don't really have anything that I can use for Beckett. Beckett is the embodiment of capitalism in this film, and so it doesn't make sense for him to be engaging in seeking a freedom. I think because he functionally already has it, more or less. Yes. Um, but one of the many problems of capitalism is that capitalism can't stop. Cutler Beckett is already incredibly powerful, but he wants even more power. He wants, he wants even more freedom and access. He doesn't want anything to be possibly able to stop him, like David Jones, who probably did not give a shit about him. Mm-hmm. But just the vague possibility that there is power that could challenge him, he needs to either remove it from the equation or take control of it himself. Mm-hmm. I don't have any more. Like, I, ha- I have more like more emotions, but not more thoughts. <laughs> that's that's very fair. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that this film works really well is because it stokes a lot of emotions that are not always easy to describe. That's probably why we don't see a lot of actual piracy happen. Like no, no normal merchant ships are getting raided for their like wool and gold. That would mean we have to kind of confront the fact that pirates are ostensibly predatory of other people's labor in a way that capitalism often is. Yeah, uh, it's just much more explicit about it. Right, and there's a lot of complications there about like liberty and anarchy and all that jazz. That would dilute the themes a bit and make us root less for the characters if we, f- if we found out that they were like doing the same kind of thing as Cutler Beckett, you know, mm-hmm. taking someone else's freedom and agency and making them unable to exercise it and then locking them into mortal form and having to, I don't know, talk dirty to them to turn them into a goddess again? I don't know. Parts of the Caribbean 3 is kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the reasons that the fa- franchise has pirates fighting other pirates or super supernatural entities or proto-corporations. Mm-hmm. I, I think on some level they realized that there was no way for people to empathize with the pirates if they were uh, attacking innocent bystanders. I think that was more so why they decided to go that route than being in any way left like i do not think that the leftist themes of this film are necessarily intentional mm-hmm. there might be in there subconsciously in the creators but not necessarily a an act- this is not ye old sorry to bother you <laughs> yeah what does david jones do what's his what's the point of him we learned that his whole job was supposed to be ferrying souls uh who die at sea into the afterlife mm-hmm. He's not doing that. They're just going there on their own. What's he do with his day? What's he want his crew for? What's their occupation when they're not busy trying to eat Jack Sparrow? I mean, I think it's that Davy Jones is fucking miserable even after he cut out his heart and he wants to spread that misery around. Sure. What do they do? What are they doing all day? I mean... Are they just going back and forth place to place? They're kind of doing Davy Jones's job. They're just doing a really bad job of it. I guess. I I feel like there there needs to be like some line about like what he's up to or like what his what his goals in life are beyond I don't know brooding and eating. Jack I mean, like he's he's definitely like ferrying souls to the afterlife. He's just doing a really shitty job of it. When Will takes over in the third film, spoilers, it's it's just a change of management, and that, that's why everything's like nicer. Like they they've refurbished the ship and the employment contracts are much more. Uh, fair. They're no longer fish people. <laughs> Maybe a downgrade, depending on who you talk to. I think a downgrade. Those effects broadly aren't that satisfying. Mm-hmm. I would definitely be sad to not be an eel person if I could be, but also got decapitated so it doesn't count. <laughs> Challenge on the pirates lore. I know who everybody was. <sighs> I love this podcast so much. <laughs> if you want more of my interactions with uh, Gore Verbinski's work and eels, ask me about a cure for wellness. I have so many <laughs> thoughts. 
Okay, I think we're getting a little <laughs> slap happy. So we're I think a little it's... oh slap. So we do need to get into um our our sub brackets, the MacGuffin brackets. Ah uh, yes, we we need to do the MacGuffin bracket again. So contenders are the drawing of the key, the heart of Davy Jones, the jar of dirt, and the black spot. Round five. Which is a better MacGuffin, the drawing of the key or the heart of Davy Jones? I definitely have to go with the heart of Davy Jones. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we already established that the key is just a way to get to the heart. Uh, and how about the jar of dirt versus the black spot? This is tough. Like the black spot is not really a MacGuffin. It's yeah. more of a like marking a character as about to be Chekhov gunned. <laughs> Uh, it's tagging an aspect. <laughs> Pretty much. Whereas the like the jar of dirt seems completely pointless and useless, and then, aha, uh, an, an actual reason for it to, to exist. But here's the thing. MacGuffins aren't necessarily supposed to have, like, a, a purpose that is intrinsic to what they are. Like, for it to be more of a MacGuffin, it needs to not be as useful. Whereas the black spot could be anything. It could be, like, the red nose, or the blue carbuncle, or... The yellow hat. Yeah, but it's not really a thing that gets traded around. Yeah, it gets turned off and on. Yeah, like no one is seeking it out, whereas people are actually seeking out the Jar of Dirt to some extent. I'll allow it. So, Jar of Dirt is moving on. And to finish it off, what is the better MacGuffin? The, the heart of David Jones or the jar that it goes into? <laughs> I think the heart, specifically, because it gets, it gets moved around more. It's not always exactly clear why people want it. I think that is... The most MacGuffin-y MacGuffin. A lot of people want it because it will let them do other things. Mm-hmm. It is an access point, mm-hmm. uh, and it and everybody wants it, and it has many utilities beyond just being a weird box. <laughs> just imagine uh, David Jones looking at the jar of dirt like, I don't like dirt. It's coarse and it's rough and it's everywhere. <laughs> Somewhat fittingly, given that... Wow, that's not how I spell heart at all. Somewhat fittingly, given that the title of this film is Dead Man's Chest, and that's where the heart was living, the heart of Davy Jones is the biggest MacGuffin in the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do now have to move on to the Ship of Theseus Award. Yeah, so what ship is more intact at the end of the film? I guess it has to be the Black Pearl, because the Simsum is completely destroyed, sunk underwater, and while the Black Pearl sinks at the end of two, it it comes back in three. Right, it's not as much destroyed as it is... Pulled into extra-dimensional space. And then put back out of that. It's basically a Star Trek transporter. (laughs) A really gross-smelling, technically, Star Trek transporter. So, Galaxy Quest. But the animal is inside out. Yes. Yes, that. If the thing you destroy is now perfectly preserved in alternate dimension for theoretically forever, that is the opposite of the ship of Theseus. It is plain of... No, Stop. (laughs) Stop. You'll hurt yourself. <laughs> but we are giving the Ship of Theseus award to... Uh, the Black Pearl. Yeah. Yeah. It may, in fact, have been built from the Ship of Theseus. <laughs> Who knows? Honestly, if they do a Ship of Theseus poll in one of the upcoming Pirates films, more power to them. Uh, but what movie is moving on? I really enjoy both of these films. I think they have a lot of strong points. I do think that Pirates 2's over-reliance on its sequel to tie up loose ends sinks the film for me. Mm-hmm. Life of Pi is very complete, and everything that you want to unpack is already there, and you can spend time with it, whereas Pirates of the Caribbean 2, I, it made me watch other movies. Yeah. And w- with Life of Pi, it, it may have, like, it leaves you with questions, but they are questions that the film is does not intend to answer, and you need to answer for yourself. 
Whereas Pirates 2 leaves you with questions that it's like, and you can find answers in a year and a half when the next film comes out. Mm-hmm. Or you can wonder why the thing is like this, and uh, you have to conclude that the reason is because the plot needs it to be. Yeah. That said, I, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean's important movies, I'm glad they're around. I look forward to more of them if they're good. Mm-hmm. Well, that closes out round two of our Bracket on a Boat. We only have three episodes left. Yeah. Then we're going to have a few uh, life rafts before we get into our uh, autumnal brackets. Are we ready to announce that? Yeah. So, uh, we had a lot of fun with the monster bracket last year, where we went into just some classic Hollywood monsters and what they've become. And in classic monster tradition, the sequel to that bracket is going to be The Bride of the Monster Bracket. Yes. So we are, once again, curating the bracket uh, pretty heavily, and we are doing a focus on uh, female horror monsters mm-hmm. so we're looking at alien we're looking at carrie we're looking at jennifer's body yeah well mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh we're also looking for for women to join us for these movies yes we are both uh amab people and it it's probably a good idea to get some uh women's opinions on these films mm-hmm. So if you would like to put your head into the ring uh, for a guest spot, uh, feel free to contact us, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, or our email address is gratuitous.pausing at gmail.com. You can follow us uh, wherever you catch your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I have a pirate.